My guest today is producer, songwriter, and recording artist Paul Gazone. Paul describes himself as an electronic troubadour, fusing acoustic guitar with a variety of sonic textures. His passion for pop melodies and radio hits are very much a part of his narrative style. Up all night, chasing a memory like a ghost fading in the back of my mind I can't sleep. In addition to songwriting and performing, Paul has produced recordings for the critically acclaimed folk rock duo Aztec Two-Step and is the bass player and contributing producer for actor Kevin Bacon and his brother Michael of the Bacon Brothers Band. According to Paul, writing a song and then recording it are inseparable. The sound is everything. I'm Charles Urich, and this is Life in the Grooves. Here is my conversation with Paul Gazone. Now, you grew up in Queens, New York, and I want to step back to your childhood and early family life. What was it like growing up in that part of New York City? Wow. We were a working-class Italian family that lived in one of those classic New York neighborhoods where part of the block was Italian, part was Polish, part was Irish, uh, part was German. Um, and it, we were all f- uh, first and second generation immigrants. So there was a lot of uh, multi-ethnic um, culture floating around our neighborhoods. That plus the obligatory Chinese restaurant <laughs> down the street. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it's, it was a New York, it was a working class New York up, upbringing. I went to a Catholic school, but I lived right across the street from a public school, PS 153. And I played in that schoolyard every day of my childhood. It was quite an idyllic uh, urban um, childhood, I have to say. Um, gosh, that's a cool question, Charles. I didn't expect you to ask me that, but that's, that forced me to think, about, think back about that. So that's cool. Yeah, that's right. That's where I grew up. Was there music in your household growing up? There was. My family, one of our neighbors um, uh, had a a son who used to tinker with electronics, and he built a stereo, um, which was the first time we'd ever heard of stereo. I don't know the years, but it was maybe sometime in the early 60s. And he built a stereo, and he talked my mom into buying the components to build us a stereo, which was really cool. And this is kind of funny because you know now today I'm you know I'm working here with with professional audio, and I understand how this all works. But back then nobody knew anything, so it was important that this thing fit into the house. Not that it was a great stereo system, but that it looked <laughs> right in the house. <laughs> so he built this big cabinet. Um, which had a space to store vinyl records underneath it, um, a turntable on the inside, and a speaker in that cabinet as well. So on the left side was a space for albums, on the right side was a, was a speaker. And I'm, I'm thinking it might look like it may have been a 12-inch speaker and a tweeter. I can't remember. And then there was a, a separate, a remote box that was the other speaker. And it matched that cabinet, but it was in a different room. <laughs> so... 
<laughs> so we had a speaker in one room and a speaker in another room, both on the first floor. But we would put on these, you know, stereo records. We, my mother would buy, my father would buy, or my brothers would buy these stereo records, which were sort of meant to blow your mind <laughs> with the stereo. So you'd have these, you know, images. Do you remember the kind of artists that, you know, on these records? Well, there were several different kinds. One, we had, um, uh, I remember Richard Rogers, the composer, um, wrote the theme music for a television and film called Victory at Sea. So remember, this was after World War II. This came out probably in the mid-50s or early 50s, and now it's the early 60s. So being, you know, patriotic, middle-class family, working-class family, we had Richard Rogers' Victory at Sea, which was this epic orchestral music. So that was one. Another was West Side Story, which my sister-in-law bought. And a third one that, that we had was the soundtrack for Gone with the Wind. Wow. Um, I remember those, and they were stereophonic recordings. And then there was occasionally, I think he brought over, the guy who built the stereo brought over like a sound effects record, <laughs> which had stuff flying back and forth between the speakers. But the only way you could hear the real stereo was to stand between the two rooms. <laughs> so it was kind of <laughs> crazy. But, you know, I, when my parents weren't around, I turned it up loud. So that was, that's an interesting memory that you conjured up for me, my friend. That's pretty cool. It's interesting because it speaks to your work as a producer. So you always kind of wonder, like, where the early influences may come from, whether they're conscious or subconscious. Musically speaking, as far as playing an instrument, did you have formal training? When did that start? My little Catholic grammar school, uh, St. Stanislaus, offered um, music lessons to students and for some reason don't ask me why I decided to try to play the violin which I did for three years five sixth and seventh grade I played the violin and took lessons which was um, really a nice introduction to music but we also had a nun sister Mary Anacletus I remember her name um, who would once a week give us music lessons we sang songs from the sound of music we learned scales solfege once a week for an hour we had a music lesson which was pretty cool all of that together added up to uh, an interest in music and um, I guess it was when the Beatles came out that I stopped playing the violin and I wanted to play the guitar of course of course just like the rest of us <laughs> yeah so you switched from violin to guitar but when mm -hmm. did you actually start playing the bass um, I didn't play the bass until I formed my first band in high school and it was basically somebody had to play the bass. And I think the bass is part of my personality, which is, you know, sort of a foundational thing. I like order. I like people to, to work together. I'm a mediator by nature. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really the reason where the bass came from. So I, I stepped up. And I um, got a little, um, uh, what was it? The bass was a Hagstrom bass. I bought a little red Hagstrom bass from the music school that I was go attending. So I started playing the bass. Do you remember anything about your first gig, first live performance? I remember being really excited, but not nervous. Um, I was inexplicably confident, even though I had no right to be as confident as I was. And we did pretty well. It was, it was us and two other bands, with, which, we, which was squeezed onto a stage. And we only played one set. There were three bands. We played one set. And um, it was not uneventful. Um, and I felt pretty satisfied. I think I was pretty excited because I thought this could actually work because we actually got paid. 
it was amazing. They paid us, I think, $100 or some <laughs> ridiculous amount of money at the time. Because all of us walked, four of us walked away with like $25 a piece, and I thought that was amazing. Because I could have been working in a, in a grocery store and made you know, less money. <laughs> so I thought, well, this might work. Do you remember what you did with that $25? <laughs> I probably stuck it in a bank account. My mother would demand that I did that uh -huh. um, to save for my college. Um, you know, I was any money that I made, I was able to put into a bank account because they were feeding me and clothing me. So I was pretty, <laughs> pretty lucky. What do you remember most about that period? Um, the most memorable performance of that part of my life was actually in high school. Uh, I was already in high school, but I guess it was my junior year in high school when I joined the folk club. That's when I went from being like interested in garage music, garage band music, and you know, rock and roll to thinking about you know lyrics and songs and I and I and I and I met a whole different crew of people uh, I met the guy who had become my bandmate in revival there and I met the girl singer who would be the singer in revival in folk club I went this is something I guess you should understand people who don't know Catholic education especially in the 60s you know, there were boys' schools and girls' schools that ever mixed, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Catholic boys' school, Catholic girls' school. I went to the first regional school, which was a big school called Christ the King High School, which was not, it was not co-educational. They called it co-institutional. So one side of the, literally one side of the building was girls, the other side was boys. The boys were taught by Marist brothers and the girls were taught by nuns. I don't remember the order. But... We would meet. We would come together at lunchtime and see each other, and we'd we'd have you know uh, stay separated during lunch period. But there was this dividing line where the boys could go over and speak to the girls, or vice versa. But you couldn't cross over to the other side. It was strange. It was you know <laughs> sexual you know segregation. Um, but in in folk club we had girls and boys, so there was a reason to get to join the folk club because you get to meet after school and hang out with the girls and play music, which was just astonishing. So that was, so I joined the folk club. We're just listening to your band Revival from your 1972 self-titled debut album and the song Words Number One. Mm -hmm. Now this is an amazing story. You got signed to a record deal barely out of school. How did this all come about? It started in Christ King High School and the Folk Club. Um, that's where I met Dan Daly. He was working with a woman named Michelle Conway and her boyfriend was a guy named Pat Sherrata. And the three of them, Dan and Patrick, were writing songs together, and Michelle was the, the lead singer, spectacular voice, and she and Dan were a duo. Um, and they were regularly going into uh, Greenwich Village and playing the, hoot, the Hootenanny Nights while we were in high school. Like, we were, in, we were in seniors in high school. They were able to go and um, play at Folk City and um, the Gaslight. Oh, yeah. Most recently depicted in the television series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes. They did a very accurate 
uh, representation of it. it. It was a much smaller club, but the vibe that they depicted was very much the vibe of the place. Anyway, Dan and Michelle would play these the coffee bars. Um, they did serve liquor too, so don't ask me how we got in there. But maybe uh, they were just looking the other way, I guess. But anyway, Dan and Michelle would play these venues. And then Danny really wanted to have more of a sound, so he asked me to play bass, and, and we started singing together as a trio. And then I got my friend Mike Malfizi, who was the drummer in the Isometric Pickle, to get involved with Dan and Michelle and myself. And the four of us formed a band. It was Patrick and Dan and Michelle that came up with the name Revival. The idea was Folk Revival. That's what they were referring to, the Folk Revival of the early 1960s, even though by now it was 67, 68, 69. They were still thinking about it that way. So it was this, this real cross-pollination uh, of folk music, uh, new styles of folk music, traditional f- sound, um, contemporary rock. Um, Danny and I were into the Grateful Dead, so there was a little bit of that. You know, and the Grateful Dead and Poco, um, country rock, um, the Love and Spoonful, those were all our influences. So we then started playing every Monday night at Gertie's Folk City, every Tuesday night at the Gaslight. And it was by playing continually um, at these venues, and then we eventually got a gig at Folk City. Folk City, of course, had a reputation. It was, you know, where Bob Dylan got started mm-hmm. and hundreds of other folks. So we were we were excited to be playing there. And it was at one of those shows that Alan Pepper, actually Stanley Stendowski, um, saw us first. Uh, didn't know who he was. He didn't say anything to us. He just wandered in. Uh, at the time, Alan and Stanley were... Um, booking the, uh, the Village Gate, and uh, we're, we're thinking about starting a club, which would become the bottom line. And they were thinking about getting into the management business. Actually, they were in the management business. They were managing Carolyn Hester, kind of a legendary uh, folk singer from the New York area. Well, she's from Texas, but she was living in New York because her husband lived in New York, came from New York, so she was living here. And she, ha- she was a contemporary of Bob Dylan's and Joan Baez. She, I think, was responsible for introducing Dylan to John Hammond at Columbia. So, so Alan and Stanley were managing Carolyn Hester. Stanley saw us at Folk City. He liked us. He brought down Alan. Alan wasn't totally sold. He had to be sold. They brought down Carolyn Hester to see us, and it was at that point we got really excited because she was there, and they um, decided to give us a shot and signed us to a management contract. And they wow. set about getting us a record deal, and at the time... Buddha was one of the New York labels that had um, signing power in New York. Of course, you still had Columbia and RCA and uh, Electra. They were all here um, as well. But there was a lot more interest in what was happening on the West Coast and, and other parts of the country. Yeah, uh, Buddha Kama Sutra was led by Neil Bogart, That's who right. later went on to form his own label, um, Casablanca Records. But mm-hmm. at that time, didn't he want New York to have more of a presence in the record business? Um, I think he had this idea of working with New York City acts, because in addition to Revival, he also signed Buzzy Linhart and NRBQ at the same time. So we were part of... Buzzy Linhart, NRBQ, and Revival were part of the same uh, signings. Yeah, the label had a unique mix of artists. Uh, initially, it was bubblegum acts like Ohio Express and some other one-hit wonders, but their roster also included people like Curtis Mayfield and uh, Bill Withers, mm-hmm. Brewer and Shipley, Charlie Daniels. It was a unique mix. Yeah, absolutely, and maybe that's why we fit in, because what we did was very eclectic. 
you have a young band, you're part of a group of new emerging artists. What did they do for you in terms of promotion? They, they did a publicity push kind of around New York's revival. You have to remember that 1973, 74, 75, the city was in disarray. It was going bankrupt, and mm-hmm. it was, I yeah. think 75 was the year that uh, famous headline from the Daily News, Ford to City Drop Dead. Yep. It was right during that era. So they made a play with um, New York's own revival. So they kind of connected us to New York is going to come back. Now, what did they do in terms of bookings? Did they put you out on tour? Did you do festivals? We didn't land a big tour opening for a major act, although we did a huge mini festival. We were third on the bill. Um, The headliners were the Birds. Opening for the Birds was Richie Havens. Opening for Richie Havens was Revival. So we did have some exposure, and we got to play in front of these huge audiences. So with that kind of exposure, was the album able to gain any kind of traction? Um, for whatever reason, it didn't click. I, th- I think I know the reason, part of the reason why it was the recording, the record, which was all important, was not really produced well, in, in our opinion. The band was very dissatisfied with the record. Um, it didn't have the punch it should have had. He was not the right guy for the job, and the record did not sound good. And we started working with a different producer and doing demos for the next record, and we started looking for an, another record deal, which did not materialize, and eventually it just uh, f- you know, fizzled out. But there was about three years, two and a half to three years, where it was a lot of it was very exciting for us. So it, was it around 1977 when you formed Little Criminals? Actually, 78. Okay. Because what happened was when the revival broke up, I still you know, was working around Greenwich Village and playing as a sideman, backing up different people in different places, getting little gigs, the occasional recording session. You know, As a side gig, I started to write. Somewhere along the way, as a sideman, I met David Lulo, and we formed a band called Little Criminals. Uh, with Harold Magidson and and Mike Malfizi from Revival. And um, we just started, I used my connections down south to uh, book concerts, and we built up a little um, a baby band tour. We bought a van, and we got in the van and traveled. Not unlike, you know, the, the punk rockers and the alternative bands in the 80s. Uh, did a bunch of colleges and a, and a bunch of clubs up and down the East Coast, and we started writing our own songs. Could not get a record deal um, at the time either. Um, didn't have management, we were self-managed, um, but we had a lot of fun. We just got a taste of the track All I Ever Wanted to Do from your 1982 debut solo album titled Dancing Room. Now, this was an EP that you produced and released independently at a time when very few people were doing this sort of thing. Well, this was right after Little Criminals, and I I was really into the punk aesthetic, the DIY thing. Uh-huh. Um, 
back then. It was like, you know, why am I banging my head against the wall trying to get somebody at a major record label to sign me? I'm not going to be a rock and roll star. You know, I don't have the looks. I don't write those kinds of songs. I haven't got the management. But I, but what I, I still want to make music, and I have a right to do that. So why can't I put out a record? Um, and the idea was to, um, you know, I was making these demos, but to what end? You know, I was, I was, you know, going around to record labels. I would get meetings. I would bring in, you know, audio cassettes and sit with A and R people, and, um, you know. I would get a nice response, but clearly, you know, I did not know then what I really understand now, which is that the record companies, uh, especially the major record companies, are not really interested in music. They're interested in, you know, hit records. They're interested in pop culture. This is what I teach my class at Pace, that the major record companies then and now are not interested in music per se. They're interested in pop culture. What, to, the, to the extent that music fits into pop culture, they're interested. Mm -hmm. So I, that, I came to that realization and I said, oh, screw it. I'm just going to make my own record. How to do that? Um, I, I was really, really lucky that my, my oldest brother uh, agreed to finance the recording, well, actually the pressing. The recordings were almost done at that point, um, but to finance the pressing and uh, the release of an album. So I just said, what the heck, let's, let's do it. He offered me the money and I we spent a couple of thousand dollars and pressed up a bunch of records, got an artist to make up a cover, um, and then we hired a radio promoter um, to help us promote it. Um, and again, I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, it was actually a good experience, but I didn't know how to properly work the system. But we did get a lot of, it was an EP, first of all, only five songs, not a lot to digest. Um, I was able to get on um, a bunch of radio stations, I think it, close to 100 radio stations up and down the East Coast. And the radio promoter, whose name is uh, Peter Gideon, he used to work at Atlantic, he was a freelance radio and record promoter at that point, was able to get me on, I think, almost 100 stations between Maine and Miami. That was the idea. Let's just work the East Coast. Uh, let's work the cities where you could reach by a van and book a tour. And we did that. And we actually got on the radio. We were on playlists. We got great reviews um, on the record, um, which I, uh, on, you know, from some really good publications. Um, and uh, I played a bunch of gigs, and I was starting. It was starting to happen, and then Billy Joel released Glass Houses. Oh boy! And <laughs> this is again where I didn't understand the business, and. The radio stations dropped, you know, the record just stopped getting played. And we, we literally heard from one radio promoter in Atlanta, is we only have room for one New York, white New York City rock singer on our playlist, and it's going to be Billy Joel this week. And that was literally the response. So, I mean, and that was that. And I was not able to parlay that into anything bigger, but it was, it was a launching pad for me. I was able to use that to sell myself as a record producer. Uh, it legitimized me in, in the New York area as a, as a player. And m the most gratifying thing was that it inspired other people. I think uh, um, you know, several musician colleagues of mine were, th were like saying, this is great. This is great that you did that. I want to do this now. Um, I think, I'm sure I was the first one among my colleagues uh, in the area uh, to do this. Um, and uh, I, think that's the, I think that's what I'm most proud of with that little recording. Now, as I alluded to in my opening segment, you believe that songwriting and the production of a record, how a record sounds, are really inseparable. Mm -hmm. 
How would you characterize those two disciplines? I mean, songwriting is is really important to me, but there's a difference between, you know, a song and a recording. And it's always been my thought, my, my point of view, that the general public does not hear the song first. They hear the record first. The sound of the record is what piques people's interest. And this goes back, I think, you know, to the early 60s and late 50s with people, um, you know, like Phil Spector and um, uh, those, the sounds of those records. They understood it, or even Sam Phillips, you know, Sun Records. That's always fascinated me. And, you know, today, when I, when I write a song, or when anybody in the, in the music industry today writes a song, it's almost impossible to separate the songwriting from the production, because it happens concurrently. And that's where we find ourselves today. I know you want to come with me. I can see it in your face. But it's not easy letting go. Don't stop to think. Don't hesitate. We can run from the fools. Run from the sorrow. Run from the day to day. We can run with the blues. Run with the beat. We can even run with the wolves. Chasing the moon. 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 Chasing So here we have an example with the title track from your 2013 album, Chasing the Moon. So how did you approach the production of this record? That was my first actual new music in years. Uh, It was a very um, slow year. Uh, We had moved up to Rockland County, and um, there wasn't much going on, and I decided to make a record. And I decided to use my Pro Tools setup and I made a conscious decision to use the electronic sounds mixed with my acoustic sounds. That's not a novel. That's not unique. People do that. But I made a conscious effort to really explore the sonic textures and, um, and mix them with acoustic instruments and, and vocals, traditional vocals. I wasn't you know, tuning my voice. I wasn't using samples. I was using electronics in the way an EDM producer would. And I was trying to, and the the thought came to me, you know, (laughs) when I was driving around one day, that um, what I'm doing essentially as a singer-songwriter working with electronics, the idea of being an electronic troubadour came to my head. And I thought, well, maybe that's a way I could, you know, distinguish myself out there. And I started calling myself an electronic troubadour. Uh, for for two reasons. One was literally I was using electronics and and writing songs. And two, the way I was reaching my audience. I was no longer traveling, you know, with an acoustic guitar across my back or in, in a van um, playing in folk clubs or coffee houses. I was now putting my music online. And the way people would hear it was through electronic connections. So I think that there's some val- validity to that People always say, what do you call your music? What is this? You know, I, and I don't know how to describe it. So I thought it's, I'd call myself an electronic troubadour. I sent uh, 
my CD up to um, DJs that I know, and I got a very curt response from a DJ <laughs> saying, electronics, yes, troubadour, not so much. So, <laughs> so I, was got, I got slammed. Um, I don't know if, he, you know, he was, he was to, to, you know, uh, just to his, his benefit, giving him the benefit of the doubt. He was an old school folk DJ. So when a, troubadour to, a troubadour to him was, you know, Woody Guthrie, not what I'm doing. Now, you're also known for your work with the Bacon Brothers Band, both mm-hmm. as the bass player and a contributing producer. This is, uh, I believe, a 27-year relationship. How did this all come about? Um, so the story with that is I had um, worked for many years with Tom Rush, um, great Tom Rush from New England. I guess it was sometime in the mid or late 80s. Um, our opening act in, um, at the Keswick Theater, somewhere near Philadelphia, was Michael Bacon, who had just moved back to the uh, Philly area, Philly, New York area, after living in Nashville. Um, and um, he, um, you know, he was really an interesting performer. Um, he played acoustic guitar, he was a solo artist, and the cello, and the thing that caught our attention was that he played the cello and sang. He accompanied himself on the cello and sang, and that was unique. And um, I remember um, uh, seeing him do that, but not really meeting him then. But he, um, as I've since come to know, um, does listen to a lot of music. And, and he was at the side of the stage and in the theater listening to the Tom Rush band with an ear towards um, how Tom's band was, was structured, which was a little unusual. Tom, um, you know, had some big records, um, did not was not particularly fond of the pop music sound. He's a folk rocker or a folky, really. Um, talk about troubadours. Our band at the time was Tom on guitar, a saxophone, flute, percussion, bass, acoustic guitar, piano, vocals. It was this sort of interesting folk ensemble that did not have a rock and roll trap set. There was no rock and roll drummer, but it was very percussive. And unbeknownst to me, Michael took note of that. So in 1994, um, unbeknownst to me, Kevin and Michael were thinking about putting a band together, and I got a phone call quite out of the blue from Michael saying, hey, it's Michael Bacon. My brother and I are forming a band, and you're the bass player. (laughs) Just like that. Just like that. And I went, oh, okay. Well, sure. Why not? Wow. So... um, yeah, they, they were invited to do a gig in Philadelphia for a friend of theirs. And they th- and really, Kevin was just testing the waters. Um, they had been playing music together all their lives, but this was the first time they were going to you know formally go out and present themselves as the Bacon Brothers. So Michael invited me in to um, a session, a test, sort of a just a rehearsal that turned out to be really a, a, um, an experiment. And we sat in his little vocal booth at the studio he was in at the time, Kevin and I and Michael. And um, I, should, I should say that the week prior to this, I had seen Kevin in the River Wild, I think. Um, I had seen him on screen in the River Wild. And, you know, I found myself in the room with him, which was a little unnerving at first, until I realized that at some point it, he seemed nervous to be around me. And I found out later that... He was a little nervous being around musicians. Uh, to him, I was this, you know, hotshot professional musician. And to me, he was this pop star, celebrity, amazing actor. Uh-huh. So I was, I was a little nervous about that. And he was a little nervous about being around another musician other than his brother. But when we sang together, 
it was pretty amazing. We just started singing. I would pop. I'm I'm a harmony singer, and I'm, I've always since high school. I've you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I've always been a, an easy harmony singer, and a blender. Um, so when Michael and Kevin were singing some of their songs, and they asked me to put a harmony on them, mm-hmm. I would I would put my t- harmony on top. I'm a tenor. So Michael was on the bottom, Kevin had the uh, middle part, and I had the high part. And the blend was really cool. It was really cool. And I got, had such a great feeling. And, and they were playing some of their original songs, you know. And one of the songs was Only a Good Woman, which knocked me out. Yeah, really a great song. It is a terrific song. And I came home from the rehearsal, and I told my wife, this is really good. This is not a vanity project. He's really good. They are really good. So they were taking this very seriously. They were very serious, and they were really good. So that was the start of it. And 27 years later, right? Yeah, 27 years later, we're still doing it. And, it's, and they trusted me enough as, a, as an, a really an early, their first bandmate, really. It was an easy step to being a, co- a co-producer on, on a record. So our, our third record I co-produced with Michael and mixed at my studio on 20th Street. And I've, I've since co-produced multiple tracks for them over the years. And they are very generous um, in giving us credit and um, obviously, you know, we get paid. Plus, it's a lot of fun to go out on the road and play live with those guys. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? It's like this is the reason I got into it in the first place. It's hard to top that feeling when you've had a good set. It really is hard to top that. Now, after you released Chasing the Moon, you came out with another series of songs, almost sort of like mini EPs, called the Three-in-One Project. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a very unique idea because you were basically releasing three songs every three months. Is that correct? Yeah, that was the idea, a song a month. Um, and um, I would release a song a month, and then I collected them on a CD. And th- that was a, uh, a marketing thing, really, because I was doing house concerts. Uh-huh. And, you know, performances, opening up for different artists and, you know, doing solo shows. And it's always good to go out there. The way the, way the business works today is artists make money performing live. And to the extent they could sell merchandise live, it's, you know, that's a critical part of keeping it going. So I always wanted to have new music available whenever I played. And the easiest way to do that was to pump out little mini EPs, you know, these three songs at a time. Um, and then at the end of the year, we just we just decided instead of putting out a fourth one, or let's just put them all together and call it the the um, three in one collection. Um, that was the the rationale behind it. But it was also good because it it challenged me to always have this goal. I got three months to get three songs fully produced. What's it going to be? <laughs> let's go do it. Well, one of those songs from that collection was featured at the top of this program called Wherever the Highway Goes. I'm so glad you chose that um, to talk about. Uh, That's one of my favorite songs. Um, And it's also appropriate to talk about it in this podcast because it's a look back for sure for me. Um, I wrote the music with my best music buddies, Ira Siegel and Frank Velarde. And it's kind of appropriate that I wrote the song with, with Frank and Ira because... It's a song about, you know, getting on the road and playing music, a road warrior song, and it's certainly something that I'd done with those guys. But the story goes all the way back to, the story in the song goes all the way back to Revival and Dan Daly, Um, you know, because he and I would travel in the van, the Revival van. We would switch off driving, 
duties. He would be driving and I'd be in the passenger seat or vice versa. And we had a station wagon, which had Mike and Michelle and whoever else was coming with us in the station wagon. So it's a reference to that because we would talk music and write, you know, talk music and listen to music and occasionally write songs while driving. And it's, it's a live track, even though it was done piecemeal. The rhythm section was live. We played it live. Um, and then I just built upon it. Um, and I'm very proud of that song, and I really do love that song. So thank you for pointing that one out. Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. You know, earlier we talked about being an electronic troubadour, combining and blending all of those textures with acoustic elements. Both the 3-in-1 collection and Chasing the Moon, I believe, really forged and shaped your identity as as songwriter, producer, and recording artist. Thank um, you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, uh, you have such a great story, and it's been very exciting to hear how your music has evolved over the years. Now, there's one more song from the Chasing the Moon album called The Simple Things, which I think is uh, really appropriate for the times and the world that we're living in. Nice Nice call. (laughs) Would you mind indulging us with an acoustic version of that particular tune? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. The simple things. The simple things can bring us together. The simple things can make you feel better. The simple things, sometimes all that you need are the simple things. The simple things in everything that you do. The simple things can touch you and move you. The simple things. Your world is all right when you got the simple things. Like walking the country or holding your baby. Singing stone soul picnic in the summertime. Cooking up fun in the kitchen Or lazy day fishing Or dancing in the moonlight With the fireflies Don't you ever want to stroll down a beach Take an apple that is just out of reach Or write a letter by hand to a friend in your hometown You're gonna be alright when you get down to the simple things The simple things the simple things, sometimes all that you need are the simple things. Because some days get so complicated, overheated, saturated. More is more, we try and try, but never seem to be satisfied. Yeah, I lost control, I went off the track, I gotta reboot, reset, I gotta get back to the simple things. That bring us together The simple things That make you feel better The simple things Sometimes all that you need Are the simple things Your world is alright Lord, don't you know When you got the simple things Oh, the simple things simple thing
that's how we got through 2020. What a great reminder for so many of us to take a step back and reflect on all those little things that we so often take for granted. So will we see you back out on the road in uh, 2021? Yes, I am booked to uh, perform in our local cultural center here uh, up in Pomona. And we also have dates um, scheduled with the Bacon Brothers at the moment. Hopefully they will, they will stay in the calendar. And I'm hoping to get out and do um, some house concerts um, as well. Thank you so much, Paul, for being my guest today. Fascinating, fascinating stories. We look forward to more new music and much continued success. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. My thanks to Paul Gazone for sharing his amazing musical journey with us. You can check out all of Paul's music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon Music. And be sure to subscribe to our show by visiting our website at lifeinthegrooves.com or lifeinthegroovespodcast.com. Life in the Grooves is produced by Tour de Force Entertainment Group. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to share, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Charles Urich. Thanks for listening. It's just your-